The Last Messiah by Peter Wessel Zapfe. One night in long bygone times, man awoke and saw himself. He saw that he was naked under cosmos, homeless in his own body. All things dissolved before his testing thought, wonder above wonder, horror above horror unfolded in his mind. Then woman too awoke and said it was time to go and slay. And he fetched his bow and arrow, a fruit of the marriage of spirit and hand, and went outside beneath the stars. But as the beasts arrived at their waterholes where he expected them of habit, he felt no more the tigers bound in his blood, but a great psalm about the brotherhood of suffering between everything alive. That day he did not return with prey, and when they found him by the next new moon he was sitting dead by the waterhole. Whatever happened? A breach in the very unity of life, a biological paradox, an abomination, an absurdity, an exaggeration of disastrous nature. Life had overshot its target, blowing itself apart. A species had been armed too heavily, by spirit made almighty without, but equally a menace to its own well-being. Its weapon was like a sword without hilt or plate, a two-edged blade cleaving everything. But he who is to wield it must grasp the blade and turn the one edge toward himself. Despite his new eyes, man was still rooted in matter. His soul spun into it and subordinated to its blind laws. And yet he could see matter as a stranger, compare himself to all phenomena, see through and locate his vital processes. He comes to nature as an unbidden guest, in vain extending his arms to beg conciliation with his maker. Nature answers no more. It performed a miracle with man, but later did not know him. He has lost his right of residence in the universe, has eaten from the tree of knowledge and been expelled from paradise. He is mighty in the near world, but curses his might as purchased with his harmony of soul, his innocence, his inner peace in life's embrace. So there he stands with his visions, betrayed by the universe in wonder and fear. The beast knew fear as well, in thunderstorms and on the lion's claw. But man became fearful of life itself, indeed of his very being. Life, that was for the beast to feel the play of power. It was heat and games and strife and hunger, and then at last to bow before the law, of course. In the beast suffering is self-confined. In man it knocks holes into a fear of the world and a despair of life. Even as the child sets out on the river of life, the roars from the waterfall of death rise highly above the veil, ever closer, and tearing, tearing at its joy. Man beholds the earth, and it is breathing like a great lung. Whenever it exhales, delightful life swarms from all its pores and reaches out toward the sun. But when it inhales, a moan of rupture passes through the multitude, and corpses whip the ground like bouts of hail. Not merely his own day could he see. The graveyards wrung themselves before his gaze. The laments of sunken millennia wailed against him from the ghastly decaying shapes, the earth-turned dreams of mothers. Future's curtain unraveled itself to reveal a nightmare of endless repetition, a senseless squander of organic material. The suffering of human billions makes its entrance into him through the gateway of compassion. From all that happen arises a laughter to mock the demand for justice, his profoundest ordering principle. He sees himself emerge in his mother's womb. 
He holds up his hand in the air, and it has five branches. Whence this devilish number five, and what has it to do with my soul? He is no longer obvious to himself. He touches his body in utter horror. This is you, and so far do you extend a no farther. He carries a meal within him. Yesterday it was a beast that could itself dash around. Now I suck it up and make it part of me. And where do I begin and end? All things chained together in causes and effects, and everything he wants to grasp dissolves before the testing thought. Soon he sees mechanics even in the so far whole and dear in the smile of his beloved. There are other smiles as well, a torn boot with toes. Eventually the features of things are features only of himself. Nothing exists without himself. Every line points back at him. The world is but a ghostly echo of his voice. He leaps up loudly screaming and wants to disgorge himself onto the earth along with his impure meal. He feels the looming of madness and wants to find death before losing even such ability. But as he stands before imminent death, he grasps its nature also and the cosmic import of the step to come. His creative imagination constructs new, fearful prospects behind the curtain of death, and he sees that even there is no sanctuary found. And now he can discern the outline of his biological cosmic terms. He is the universe's helpless captive, kept to fall into nameless possibilities. From this moment on, he's in a state of relentless panic. Such a feeling of cosmic panic is pivotal to every human mind. Indeed, the race appears destined to perish insofar as any effective preservation and continuation of life is ruled out when all of the individual's attention and energy goes to endure or relay the catastrophic high tension within. The tragedy of a species becoming unfit for life by over-evolving one ability is not confined to humankind. Thus it is thought, for instance, that certain deer in paleontological times succumbed as they acquired overly heavy horns. The mutations must be considered blind. They work, are thrown forth, without any contact of interest with their environment. In depressive states, the mind may be seen in the image of such an antler, in all its fantastic splendor pinning its bearer to the ground. Why, then, has mankind not long ago gone extinct during great epidemics of madness? Why do only a fairly minor number of individuals perish because they fail to endure the strain of living, because cognition gives them more than they can carry. Cultural history, as well as observation of ourselves and others, allow the following answer. Most people learn to save themselves by artificially limiting the content of consciousness. If the giant deer, at suitable intervals, had broken off the outer spears of its antlers, it might have kept going for some while longer. Yet in fever and constant pain, indeed in betrayal of its central idea, the core of its peculiarity, for it was vocated by creation's hand to be the horn-bearer of wild animals. What it gained in continuance, it would lose in significance, in grandness of life, in other words, a continuance without hope, a march not up to affirmation, but forth across its ever-recreated ruins, a self-destructive race against the sacred will of blood. The identity of purpose and perishment is, for giant deer and man alike, the tragic paradox of life. In devoted Bejahung, the last service Giganticus bore the badge of its lineage to its end. 
the human being saves itself and carries on. It performs, to extend a settled phrase, a more or less self-conscious repression of its damaging surplus of consciousness. This process is virtually constant during our waking and active hours, and is a requirement of social adaptability, and of everything commonly referred to as healthy and normal living. Psychiatry even works on the assumption that the healthy and viable is at one with the highest in personal terms. Depression, fear of life, refusal of nourishment and so on, are invariably taken as signs of a pathological state and treated thereafter. Often, however, such phenomena are messages from a deeper, more immediate sense of life, bitter fruits of a geniality of thought or feeling at the root of anti-biological tendencies. It is not the soul being sick, but its protection failing or else being rejected because it is experienced correctly as a betrayal of ego's highest potential. The whole of living that we see before our eyes today is from inmost to outmost enmeshed in repressional mechanisms, social and individual. They can be traced right into the tritest formulas of everyday life. Though they take a vast and multifarious variety of forms, it seems legitimate to at least identify four major kinds, naturally occurring in every possible combination. Isolation, anchoring, distraction and sublimation. By isolation I here mean a fully arbitrary dismissal from consciousness of all disturbing and destructive thought and feeling. Engstrom. One should not think it is just confusing. A perfect and almost brutalizing variant is found among certain physicians who, for self-protection, will only see the technical aspect of their profession. It can also decay to pure hooliganism, as among petty thugs and medical students, where any sensitivity to the tragic side of life is eradicated by violent means, football played with cadaver heads and so on. In everyday interaction, isolation is manifested in a general code of mutual silence, primarily toward children, so these are not at once scared senseless by the life they have just begun, but retain their illusions until they can afford to lose them. In return, children are not to bother the adults with untimely reminders of sex, toilet or death. Among adults there are the rules of tact, the mechanism being openly displayed when a man who weeps on the street is removed with police assistance. The mechanism of anchoring also serves from early childhood. Parents, home, the street become matters of course to the child and give it a sense of assurance. This sphere of experience is the first and perhaps the happiest protection against the cosmos that we ever get to know in life, a fact that doubtless also explains the much debated infantile bonding. The question of whether that is sexually tainted too is unimportant here. When the child later discovers that those fixed points are as arbitrary and ephemeral as any others, it has a crisis of confusion and anxiety and promptly looks around for another anchoring. In autumn I will attend middle school. If the substitution somehow fails, then the crisis may take a fatal course, or else what I will call an anchoring spasm occurs. One clings to the dead values, concealing as well as possible from oneself and others the fact that they are unworkable, that one is spiritually insolvent. The result is lasting insecurity, feelings of inferiority, overcompensation, restlessness. Insofar as this state falls into certain categories, it is made subject to psychoanalytic treatment, which aims to complete the transition to new anchorings. Anchoring might be characterized as a fixation of points within or construction of walls around the liquid fray of consciousness. 
Though typically unconscious, it may also be fully conscious. One adopts a goal. Publicly useful anchorings are met with sympathy. He who sacrifices himself totally for his anchoring, the firm, the cause, is idolized. He has established a mighty bulwark against the dissolution of life, and others are by suggestion gaining from his strength. In a brutalized form as deliberate action, it is found among decadent playboys. One should get married in time, and then the constraints will come of themselves. Thus one establishes a necessity in one's life, exposing oneself to an obvious evil from one's point of view, but a soothing of the nerves, a high-walled container for a sensibility to life that has been growing increasingly crude. Ibsen presents, in Hjalmar Ekdal and Molvik, two flowering cases, living lies. There is no difference between their anchoring and that of the pillars of society except for the practico-economic unproductiveness of the former. Any culture is a great rounded system of anchorings built on foundational firmaments, the basic cultural ideas. The average person makes do with the collective firmaments, the personality is building for himself, the person of character has finished his construction, more or less grounded on the inherited collective main firmaments. God, the church, the state, morality, fate, the law of life, the people, the future. The closer to main firmaments a certain carrying element is, the more perilous it is to touch. Here a direct protection is normally established by means of penal codes and threats of prosecution, inquisition, censorship, the conservative approach to life. The carrying capacity of each segment either depends on its fictitious nature having not been seen through yet, or else on its being recognized as necessary anyway. Hence the religious education in schools, which even atheists support because they know no other way to bring children into social ways of response. Whenever people realize the fictitiousness or redundancy of the segments, they will strive to replace them with new ones, the limited duration of truths, and whence flows all the spiritual and cultural strife which, along with economic competition, forms the dynamic content of world history. The craving for material goods, power, is not so much due to the direct pleasures of wealth as none can be seated on more than one chair or eat himself more than sated. Rather, the value of a fortune to life consists in the rich opportunities for anchoring and distraction offered to the owner. Both for collective and individual anchorings, it holds that when a segment breaks...